Father, you are holy, holy, holy. You are perfectly holy. And you have called us to be your holy people. One holy race, a holy priesthood. And you have said, you shall be holy unto me, for I, your God, am holy. And I pray that you would consecrate us tonight, Lord. That you would set us apart with your empowering word, that you would set us apart. And thank you, Lord, for the privilege of opening the book. Lord, I pray that these words would be real to me. And I ask, God, that you would teach us something tonight that helps us to live for you. Because for many of us from our childhood, your word has been a, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You have taught us from your word. You have sustained us by your word. And Lord, we know that you... Uh, for generations have spoken through the prophets. But in these last days, as your word says, you have spoken to us through your son. And we pray, Lord, that the, the powerful vision of Christ that John saw at Patmos would be so real to us, Lord, that we would find the same strength he found to face the challenges in his day. And Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Such a privilege to be with you tonight and to open God's word with you. I always love to teach God's word. I found myself tweeting yesterday, I love to read and run and study history. But if I could just do one thing, I would love God by teaching his word to his people. And I get to do that. Go figure. I get to do what I love, love to do. And it's, I think, especially appropriate that we study the book of Revelation on this weekend in which we've been focusing on the blessing, an amazing, amazing uh, last night and today we've experienced. But I think it's appropriate because this is a book in the Bible that promises blessing to those who read it, not just to those who read it, but remember those who hear it and who keep it. That's the word, who obey it. Not enough just to read it out loud. And uh, in the months to come, we will read the entire book of Revelation out loud. We'll receive that blessing, but we'll only receive it if we hear it and if we obey it and take it to heart. In the middle of my football game yesterday, somebody on the screen said, I believe we are living in the end times. Now, at first I thought he was referring to the fact that my football team was actually winning a game. And there were so many years <laughs> that we said something cosmic would have to happen for our team to win. And they were winning with some regularity. But that's not what the, the word was. It was a commercial. Maybe you know this TV show, but there's this father who's leading his family in a reality TV show, and the commercial said, I believe we are living in the end times. And so in this reality TV show called Doomsday Castle, uh, 
They apparently focus on him teaching his kids how to hunt and fish and live off the land in the case of some catastrophe. They are building a doomsday castle that is going to provide them protection. And I just need to be honest with you tonight, in full disclosure, I'm not planning on watching the show. I'm not. But I'm interested in his premise. 41% of Americans believe Jesus will return in the next 40 years, a recent survey says. That's down three percentage points from 1999. 20% of religiously unaffiliated Americans believe Jesus will return in 40 years. And I'm wondering, what are they thinking? 20% believe he's going to return, but they are absolutely unaffiliated. The writers of the New Testament believed that we, that they are living in the latter days. The writer of Hebrews starts his letter by saying, God has spoken many ways at many times through his servants, the prophets. But in these last days, the writer of Hebrews wrote, he has spoken to us through his son. And they anticipated the return of Christ at any moment. But they also knew that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. And when I heard that commercial and as I studied the book of Revelation the last couple of weeks, I wondered, do we believe we are living in the last times? And how does that affect the way we live? For instance, if we knew that Jesus Christ could return at any moment, what would we do? Would we build a doomsday castle? We learn to live off the land? Just to define some parameters for us before we begin to read, I'm interested in studying the book of Revelation. I know some of you have spent a lot of time studying the end times as a topic. This is not a topical study of the end times. I'm sure there are people far better equipped to do that than I am. And I'm not predicting when Jesus is going to return particularly because Jesus told us not to do that. And um, because in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, when his disciples looked up at the sky, the angel said, why do you stand here looking at the sky? This same Jesus who went away from you will return in the same way. And they, they asked him in Acts 1, verse 7, so is this the time? And Jesus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase it. I'm going to just translate it literally from Greek. Not for you to know. That's what he said. Not for you to know. So what's the point of studying the book of Revelation if we're not going to figure out when Jesus is coming back? Well, the point of studying the book of Revelation today is the same point of studying the book of Revelation in the first century. Because this book has much to say to us about living faithfully as followers of Jesus Christ in a world that largely doesn't want to follow him. And I would rather, as we've heard tonight, 500 people came to know Christ on that mission trip. I would so far rather us become witnesses who tell our neighbors on our streets about Jesus. I would much rather that than to promise you that I can tell you exactly who the 144,000 are going to be. Because in context, Revelation is a letter to the churches of Jesus Christ, then and now. So as a, 
another pastor in our state often says, if you are a prophecy junkie, if you love prophecy and you can't get enough of studying and studying and studying, I would just say to you that, 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 that you, you may not be satisfied with a study of the book of Revelation if your goal is to find out more about Jesus' return than about Jesus. Because the book of Revelation is about Jesus. And if you'll receive it, our lives are about Jesus. And this world is about Jesus. And he is working right now through his church. And we who believe in Christ are part of that church. We're part of that work that he's doing in the world. I know sometimes we're a piece of work. But he wants us to be a part of his work. So would you open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 1. Verses 1 to 8, and we are going to study the whole book unless Jesus returns before we finish, and that, that could be tonight. But I just want to study the first eight verses with you and talk with you about A to Z, how the eternal God is, is with us. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 says, let's stand together as we read God's word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. You may be seated. So what is this magnificent book that I've been reading since I was 12 years old? I've been reading the book of Revelation. And what, what is the revelation? The word, the revelation, literally translates the word the apocalypse. Now, if I say the apocalypse, we have an image of that, maybe a fiery image of destruction and there are movies about that apocalypse now and the implications of that but the word apocalypse literally means revelation it means from the hiddenness 
coming out of the secret, out of the secrecy, something is revealed. And the revelation is the revelation not of John. I know our older translations said of John, but it's not really about John. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is both the revealer and the revealed. He is the revealer. And if you sort of see it, there's a a sort of sequence that takes place where God gives this revelation to Jesus, who gives it to his angel, who gives it to John, who gives it to his readers, who include us so that we may receive the word of God. He gives it specifically to servants, and later he says to the seven churches, which were, by the way, seven churches. There were seven churches in Asia. In fact, uh, some years ago, I think it was 2001, I took a group of you and we went on a a tour of those seven cities in Asia, in present-day Turkey, and we looked at the places and it was in itself a revealing experience. But there were churches in those cities and John, whoever else we can say he was, I believe he was John, the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus' disciples who became a pastor in Ephesus there in what we would call Turkey today. He was a pastor who was responsible for those seven churches, but who was in exile. He was also a poet. And he writes down this vision that he receives, this marvelous experience. God takes him and shows him things that he could never have imagined, and they are so marvelous that they're difficult for us to even comprehend. And there are symbols here and numbers, and he's a poet, and he has imagination. And we're stepping into this dream, and we're trying to understand David Dykes makes the analogy that if a thousand years from now, if the world is still, still here a thousand years from now, archaeologists started digging down in Houston, Texas, and they found an old newspaper from November of 1992, and they saw a political cartoon, and that political cartoon featured a donkey with a bat beating an elephant the archaeologists of a thousand years from now might be perplexed by what they saw, and so they might have theories about it. And one might say, well, those ancient Texans loved circuses, and among the features in the circus, there were donkeys that could literally pick up sticks of wood and hit elephants with them, and they somehow found this entertaining. But somebody else, a little bit more astute, might say, no, those Texans, they liked a game called baseball. And in 1992, in the World Series, it turns out that a team called the Donkeys beat the Elephants in the World Series. But a third archaeologist who might have done a little more research and study could look at those same things and say, well, actually, in those days, they had a couple of political parties. And in the election of November of 1992, um, the one represented by the donkeys beat the one represented by the elephants. And that's what this cartoon is about. And I would say that in my lifetime, there have been a lot of people like the first two archaeologists reading the book of Revelation and telling everybody what it meant. I shall never forget best-selling books taught by Sunday school teachers and church training teachers when I was a young person who told me the world was done by 1984. Well, it's a good thing it wasn't, or depends on your perspective, but that's the year I graduated from college and married Melanie. So 84 was a really big year. Pushing Orwell aside and, um, 
and those who pre predicted that the second coming would certainly happen by that date aside, in fact, they were not correct. And then they just published new versions of the book. There are cult groups in our country who have often predicted the actual date of the second coming of Christ. And when he didn't return said, well, he came invisibly. There are, to use the analogy of medicine, a good bit of people who've been engaged in malpractice in the reading of Revelation through the years. And I don't want to add myself to that company. And so I want us to understand the things that we can understand because the, that we can understand because the same spirit who inspired John also inspires us. And we can read this book and understand some great truths that will empower us not to, not just to know when we're getting out of this world, but to know that our God is in this world. He created this world and he will be there at the end of this world. And that same God who is that powerful is powerfully with us in the events of our lives that we will engage in starting the minute we walk out of this room tonight. God will be with us and he promises us this blessing if we hear it and we take to heart. The word literally means if we keep, if we treasure the words that are written in it because the time is near. Now, isn't that interesting that John would write to people 2,000 years ago and say these things will take place soon and the time is near? And different scholars do different things with that. Um, some will say, well, um, that, that literally the people in the first century believed that this would happen right away. Now, one answer to that is that some of the events that I think are that are predicted or spoken about in the book of Revelation did start happening right away, like the fall of Jerusalem in 66 to 70 AD. Some of those things began then, but they are obviously not all yet fulfilled. But another translation of that word soon is the word sudden. In other words, when these things start happening, they are going to unfold. They are going to happen. I, I'll not forget uh, another trip of ours years ago, and uh, we our buses broke down or something, and we came into a hotel in the middle of the night, and it was almost breakfast time, but we hadn't had supper, and so we decided to wait there for a meal, and uh, we waited, and we waited, and we caught the wait staff and the kitchen off guard. I think they had to wake up the chefs, and so we're all sitting there, and we are famished, and we are starving, and I'll never forget um, a, a waiter whose English was not exactly precise came to me and said, your soup is coming suddenly. And I thought, he doesn't know what that means because sudden soup sounds splashy to me. And I wasn't interested in sudden soup, but I was interested in soon soup. But to say that the time is near is to say that those early Christians understood that the coming of Christ into the world had ushered in a new age, a beginning of the end, if you will, a beginning of God's work, his culminating work in the world and all of history before Christ waited for God's coming into the world and Christ coming into the world changed our whole evaluation of time. And what he says to us about this one who is, is that he also was and that he is to come. He says it twice in this passage he also says it interestingly in chapter 22, verse 13, at the end of the book of Revelation, he says, he who is and who was 
and who is to come. It's his best way, I think, in Greek to comprehend the Hebrew concept of the tetragrammaton, that is the YHWH, Yahweh, or some say Jehovah, I am that I am. Moses said, whom shall I, whom shall I say sent me? Tell them I am that I am. That is, I am the timeless God who has always been, who is now, and who will always be. And somehow, these words about the Alpha and the Omega engaged these early believers who were experiencing persecution and were about to experience a bunch more persecution at the hands of an evil emperor of Rome named Domitian. That's what was happening when this book was written. John is in exile on Patmos because of the message of Jesus Christ. And while he is there on the Lord's day, a vision comes to him as he worships. And I hope, I hope you see as you read this book of Revelation how much it is about worship. How much it is about seeing who God is And in our self-centered world where churches can also become self-focused and Christians can become as self-centered as non-Christians are, this book calls us back to a theocentric view of life, to a life that is centered in God and God alone, the God who is, the God who was, and the God who is to come. And somehow, God used that truth to sustain his followers 2,000 years ago so that they were able, as they were being torn limb from limb and molten uh, metal was being poured into their brains, they were able in the middle of that to find grace to stand. I don't know what your week holds, but my best guess is you're not going to be torn limb from limb and nobody's going to pour molten metal into your head that that's not the kind of persecution you're enduring. But I pondered this week what it would be like if you were in Syria or you were in Egypt or you were in Palestine or, as a friend of mine reminded me, in Israel, if you found yourself in one of those 50 countries, you can Google it, where Christians are most persecuted in the world. I suspect that when you read the book of Revelation, you would read it differently than the average American who has an interest in the future. There would be a greater urgency. And when he says the time is near and these things are coming soon, he is saying to them, this God is with us and he is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. Those are the letters of the Greek alphabet. He's the A and he's the Z. And he always has been. And I wondered this week, what if he were our Alpha? What if he were the beginning point of our lives? What if we started every day with him? And what if he were our omega? What if he were the end and not the means to our ends? What would it be like for God to be our alpha and omega? What if we saw him as the one who is eternally present, who is with us? And it raised the question for me, have you ever wondered what what exactly is God? Maybe your friends have asked you, what is God doing for you? What is God doing for you? And he shows us in the present tense who our God is. And he's the one first who is Jesus Christ, is the faithful witness who gives grace and peace to his church. Verse four, because you can't have God's peace 
without first having God's grace. Without his unmerited favor, there is no peace. And we found ourselves in Israel looking in that park called Peace Park at a panoramic view of the old city, looking back at the, at the walls of Jerusalem. And we stood there in wonder, a group of 70-something of us on three buses disboarded the buses. We got off the buses and we looked back at that and we had a little worship service there in Peace Park. And while we were there, we just started thinking about God's peace and God's promise of peace. And we sang, my peace I give unto you. It's a peace that the world cannot give. It's a peace that the world doesn't understand. My peace I give to you. And just then, a panhandler, which doesn't happen often in Israel, for those of you who've been there, a panhandler confronted us and said, I want you to give me some money. And out of nowhere, and when I say out of nowhere, I mean out of nowhere, because I never saw them before and I've never seen them since. But out of nowhere, armed guards with very big, scary guns came walking and escorted that man away, and they took him away from Peace Park with guns. And I thought about a nation, Israel, that so longs for peace. Even the name Jerusalem conveys the image of peace. But to protect peace, they have to have guns, which is a sure sign that the peace of God has not finally come. Because when Jesus' peace comes, we won't need to protect it with guns. Because when Jesus' peace comes, it will come as a result of his grace in our lives. He's giving us grace and peace. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead. And he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And this is what he's doing for us right now. Verse five says he is loving us. And I wonder if we believe, really believe that God loves us. Some of us have a hard time loving ourselves and consequently we have a hard time loving others. Jesus was able to do what he was able to do because at strategic moments in his life, his father, the blessing showed up in audible form and said, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. And Jesus would look at his disciples and and say, I love you. And John would say, for God so loved the world. If you want to know what God is doing, this God who is, this God is loving us. Even now he is loving us with an undying love. And we need to believe that and receive that. I think about Brennan Manning Um, Brennan is not his actual first name, but the story is quite interesting. He had a best friend, and they were uh, buddies in high school. They double-dated together. They enlisted in the Army together. They went over to the war together. They were sitting in a foxhole together one night, and his friend named Ray was eating a chocolate bar, listening to Brennan talk about his life and hopes for the future when a live grenade fell in the foxhole. And Brennan Manning says his friend Ray smiled at him, dropped the chocolate bar, and dove on top of the grenade, and his friend Ray was killed, and Brennan survived. And when he entered the priesthood, they said, you need to choose the name of a saint. And he thought about his friend, Ray Brennan, who had died in his place, and took that name. And years later, he sat down with his friend Ray's mother, and they were talking one night, drinking coffee, and he said, you know, I've often wondered 
whether Ray really loved me, which incensed Ray's mother, as you can understand. And she stood up and said to him with a finger pointing in his face, what more could my son have done for you? He is the one who is actively loving us. And if we doubt that, we can imagine the heavenly father asking us, what exactly more could Jesus have done for you to demonstrate his love than what he has already done on the cross? This is what God who is, is doing. This is what the God who was, is doing. It says in these verses, he made us to be a kingdom and priest. Before that, in verse five, he freed us from our sins by his blood. This is what God is doing. This is what God was doing for those first century believers. They had been set free from their sins like you and me. They were sinners. All of them were sinners. All had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And by his grace, by the blood of his son, God had freed them from those sins because sins have this way of enslaving us. I read this week about Robert Saltzman, who was a prisoner in Long Island. And after he was released from prison, there was a, a filmmaker who wanted to make a picture of what it was like to be a prisoner. And so he looked for one who had actually been in prison and he found this man, a Robert Saltzman. And he said, I want you to act in my movie. And as part of the movie, he took him back to one of the prisons he had been in and they filmed there, and Saltzman became very weary, and he took a nap on a cot in one of the cells. And when he woke up, he was confused, as we sometimes are when we wake up, and he thought he was still in prison, and he lost it. And that moment, the crew reminded him, you're not in prison, you're free. The door is open, you are free to go. And he, who had been so unable to live in freedom for the first time, had a moment of revelation where he realized, I am really free. What if God really freed us from our sins? What if you and I are no longer slaves of besetting sins? What if we have the power through the grace of Christ to turn from our sins and put them behind us? Then wouldn't we be free? And he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. He has made us to be a kingdom and priests. We are not kings, but we are a kingdom, collectively, corporately. We are priests, and our work of priesthood is to serve our God and our Father. And so he gets glory and power forever and ever. He bursts into this doxology. This reminds us that our God not only is, but our God was. And the best news of all, verses 7 and 8, our God is the one who is to come. And this is what he says about the coming of Christ. And I don't want us to miss this. He says very simply four things about Christ's coming. He says, Jesus Christ will come personally. Look, he, look, he is coming. My New Testament professor in seminary, Wordus Gideon, used to say, and he's not going to send a committee. He is coming. He himself is coming. Look, he is coming. He says, this one is coming. Jesus is coming personally. Not only that, he's coming powerfully in the clouds. This harkens back, by the way, to the book of Daniel, where there is the promise that one like a son of man will come in the clouds. And remember Jesus' disciples in Acts chapter one, they're looking up at the clouds because literally it says a cloud received him. And the angel says, in the same way he left he will come again. It's a, it's a powerful image, powerful, so powerful that he combines with it a, a teaching from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, which says that when people see him, 
They will mourn over him. There is power, this image of the power. Those of us who've endured tornadoes and hurricanes know something about the power of a cloud. Imagine Jesus coming with the clouds. He's coming personally. He's coming powerfully. He's coming, listen to this, visibly. Every eye will see him. He will come visibly. And there are those who say, well, Jesus is going to come He's going to come secretly, and we look back to Matthew chapter 24, and we look back. Um, I think what that says, a thief in the night, and doesn't Paul pick it up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as well in chapter 5, this image of we know he's coming like a thief in the night. We, we think that means invisibly, but what it really means, I think, as I understand it, is unexpectedly. So nobody will actually know the moment that he is coming. We live with this constant preparation and awareness that Christ is going to return. But when he comes, the vision is that Christ's second coming will be visible. And it's hard to even imagine physically how on this earth every eye will see him. But it's even, it's even more amazing than that because it says even those who pierced him, even those, by the way, who pierced him. Now some of those who pierced him have passed away. And some of us who pierced him are still alive. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Because I was. Were you there? And those who pierced him will see him. And a lot of the thought about the second coming of Christ is a, is a bit um, self vindicating, so much so. Yeah, my enemies are going to get it that day. They're going to get what's coming to them. But listen when he says, Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. He comes back visibly, and he comes back, listen to this, victoriously. He's the alpha. Is he your alpha? He's the omega. He's the end. Is he the end for you, or is he a means to your end, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. These early believers were dealing with a king named Domitian who called himself the autocrator in Greek. He was the ruler by self. He was the all-powerful one. And John coins a different word that gives us our word almighty. It's pantocrator. He's the ruler of everything. He is almighty. He has all the might. And he is in charge of the world. And I ask you again, at the beginning of this study... If you knew Jesus Christ could come back at any moment, how then would you live? What relationship would you make right? What would you do? What would you stop doing? Because believers in Christ from 2,000 years ago have lived with an eye to the sky always wondering, anticipating the soon return of Christ so that when he comes, we will be prepared because heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way, and I close with this. When the author walks on the stage, the play is over. God's going to invade all right for all those who are asking him to invade. He's going to invade all right but what is the good of saying you're on his side then 
when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered your head to conceive comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying you chose to lie down when it's become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, This moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. God is the Alpha and the Omega. Is he your Alpha? Is he your Omega? Because... To know that God is our Alpha and Omega means like those first century Christians, we can face anything. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your amazing grace and power and transforming love. I thank you for the promise of Christ's return. And God, for those who know you, that is such a great comfort. And for that 20% who think you're coming back within 40 years but are uncommitted, It's a reminder to us, Lord, that this is not the time to hedge our bets. This is not the time to stand on the fence and waver. We must choose this day whom we will serve. We must choose life instead of death. And the only life we know comes from the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, and the resurrection, and the life. So help us, God, to choose you first and last. Let us start our day with you tomorrow morning. Let us end our day with you tonight so that when the end comes, we will already have a pattern in our lives of putting you first. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.